When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's now time for our interview specials. Take a trip back in time to the golden era of football. Sit back and listen up. It's time! You can't win anything with kids. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. How much are the players looking forward to Arsene Wenger arriving? <laughs> Hi guys and welcome to another episode of the Phoenix Five Specials. On this week's show, we've been lucky enough to be interviewing with the legend of Sheffield Wednesday, Mr. Kevin Pressman. Kevin played 470 times for his club. Uh, was a fourth-time all-time appearance holder. He worked under managers such as Howard Wilkinson, Ron Atkinson, Trevor Francis, David Pleat, Paul... Uh, the list goes on. He played alongside <laughs> some absolutely legends of players. Nigel Worthington, Nigel Pearson, Chris Waddle, Colton Palmer, Andy Sinton, DeCanio, Carboni. I'm going to stop there because otherwise the whole episode is going to be me going through players you played with and managers who managed you. You well? Yeah, I'm very good. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Can't, Can't complain, to be honest. <laughs> I'm joined this week by David Holland and Adam Miller. Hi, guys. You okay? Yeah, how you doing? How's it going, Paul? So I'm going to start off, Kevin. So being a Sheffield Wednesday fan as a kid, how was it when you got the chance to play for him? Well, I mean, oh, you're going back a while now. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, it was back schoolboy. It's not academies as it is now. It was schoolboy forms. Um, I was offered schoolboy forms. I, I could have signed for quite a few clubs, to be honest. Manchester United, one of them. Forest, Sheffield United. I was Sheffield. My mum and dad were in Sheffield. Um, lived in Sheffield. So we, it was the best one for me. I mean, even Man United guaranteed me an apprenticeship. Um, Ron Atkinson, funny enough, was the one that, um, that invited my parents to go over and be wined and dined and everything. But I just didn't want anything guaranteed. I wanted to earn the right. Sheffield Wednesday gave me a bit more of a, a plan. I was local. I could get the bus there and... You know, I could start training two nights a week and I used to play for the Sunday League team called Middlewood Rovers. So you was, uh, had the opportunity to play for quite a few clubs there then. You obviously, Man United would have been a, a big draw and, and you you bring up about, uh, they offered you things to kind of play. Was that quite commonplace back then in terms of managers offering parents? Things? I think, I mean, it's, well, it's nothing, like it, nothing like it is now. Um, you know, it was just a guaranteed old schoolboy form. So I probably would have only gone over to Man United during the holidays, school holidays. And spent my time there. Um, and, you know, yeah, the attraction of having something guaranteed was always nice. But I thought to myself, you know, I was local to Sheffield and uh, I could go there and train twice a week, as well as the holidays, the six weeks holidays. Um, 
and and I felt that was a better opportunity for me, to be honest. So as a goalkeeper, it's a lot about mentality being a goalkeeper. Obviously, ability and agility is very important. But I find watching a goalkeeper, and I think everyone might agree with me, it's the mental focus of being a goalkeeper that's the most challenging part. How did you deal with that? Yeah, you're right. It is 80% of goalkeeping is, is the mental side of it. 20% is actually the goalkeeping. Um, for me, I suppose the way I was brought up and the way football was then, you know, um, it's not like it is now. You know, if you didn't do your job and you didn't do things, you, you got dealt with. You know, um, with it being an apprentice at Sheffield Wednesday, eventually, I, um, if you didn't do pack the kit correctly, then you're in in the evenings training with the schoolboys. You know, it was things like that. It was a lot of discipline. You know, you had to clear the dressing rooms. You had to do all the work and all the graft. And then if you got one week, I was uh, doing the helping the groundsman with the pitch, um, and then I'd swap it with going and work in the club shop. So you know, there was a lot of discipline then. You know, there was no real grey areas. There was you had jobs to do, and if you didn't do the jobs, then obviously you were dealt with. Could you hear when you're standing the goal, the, like you know, let's say a, a, a derby? Would you be able to hear fans pelting abuse at you, or, or was that just? Oh zone? yeah, it's the best part of it. <laughs> it is. I, I I used to enjoy that. I mean, I was you know I was fortunate enough that my my wife and my family used to go to games, so home and away. Um, and I, I used to say to her after the game, she hear that bloke, did you hear that bloke? She said, what do you mean that bloke? I said, did you hear him at the cop and all this? Um, there was one of them where. And it was at home actually. It was we weren't doing particularly well, but I went to the ball went out of play behind the goal, and I went to get it off the cop at Hillsborough, and and the guy's thrown the ball as hard as possible at me, and I've just moved out of the way, and I've looked down at me badge, thinking, well, I'm going to make we're in the same thing. Next thing I see this guy coming down the steps, and he just absolutely smacks it, <laughs> and uh, throws a punch, and then just goes back and and, and sits up, you know. I used to love it, yeah, yeah, I used to hear it, I used to hear all the banter and everything, because I found that sometimes if you concentrated, everything you concentrate for 90 minutes, you do in the sense that whilst you're there, but you need to sometimes come out to refocus. So mm-hmm. I used to, you know, if opportunities present themselves, the ball was down the other end, I knew I was in the right position, I knew everything I was I was happy with. Yeah, you just have a little listen and a little wonder and you hear the comments, you know, good and bad. I enjoyed the bad comments probably more, because at least I knew I was upsetting somebody. The, you played in the Steel Derby, yeah. So, mm. was that was that the biggest was that like the biggest game like Sheffield Wednesday were were in? Or I I was I was very fortunate that I understood what the Sheffield Derby meant. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because I've been through the ranks at the club. I've been there for twenty years. Uh, well, now looking back, I've been there for twenty years. I knew what it meant, and yeah. and I knew for a fact a bad performance on Derby Day could finish your career as a, as a Wednesday yeah, player. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I, I love them. I love them because, you know, I've got friends who are Sheffield United supporters. I've got friends who are Sheffield Wednesday supporters. And I just wanted to, you know, for whatever reason, I did do well in the games. Would you, say, would you say that was your biggest game of the season? It was, yes. Yeah, definitely. Derby days were, of course. Yeah. It was so much at stake. It was so yeah, much yeah. at stake. The bragging rights of, Sheff- of Sheffield. And, and it was something that meant a lot to me as well because I didn't want to let anybody down. And, yeah. and it drove me and... I try to reproduce or you look at anything right how can I redo that and that was one of the things I never achieved was a perfect game I never achieved a perfect game tried and I tried till 40 but never did there was always something I could do better even that people think well you played well that day that's always something I thought I could have done better during that game 
was a clean was a clean sheet not enough for you then no 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 ah. there was a lot of local players um within the club and and, and everybody knew what it meant um, we didn't go we had a we had good contacts with 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 the supporters anyway and um you know, we, a lot of people, even when the, the, you know, we had foreign players come in, they were told what it meant. And they knew by the passion when you come out on a match day at Derby Day, you know, you get a, a capacity crowd with the balloons and everything. You know straight away how much it means for the supporters. And that was drilled home by the likes of myself and the local players, the Nigel Pearsons and the Nigel Worthingtons, that all understood what it meant to you know, to, to play in a derby and, and what it meant for the Wednesday sports to have a victory. Amazing. So you started your career Sheffield Wednesday, as we said, and obviously it spent a long, long time at one club. Um, when you was breaking in at around 1990, you had a first major injury, which your crucial ligament injury. And obviously now those injuries are a bit more technology and, and medicine has, has healed them a lot quicker. What was in? How did you deal with that? Because that's quite a big injury at the time. It ended quite a lot of players' careers. It did. Um, I was made aware of that. Um, I got taken straight up to the Northern General Hospital in Sheffield. Um, and back then, it was the next day I had the operation. Um, the funny thing was that uh, the surgeon walked in and he'd come and see me. I was pain-free, absolutely pain-free. First, probably 10, 15 seconds of the injury, I was in a lot of pain left that, no pain whatsoever. So he came in and he said, oh, I feel great, feel great, you know, fantastic. And he got me leg and he bent my leg up and he put my heel on the floor and I went through the roof. Oh, yeah, you definitely done your cruise ship. Uh, right, we'll operate. So he gets a marker pen and he draws an arrow on my leg. He says, what's that for? He says, oh, so then when I come back, or when we come down to the operating theater, I know you've got the right leg. You know, it's that, that's the leg I'm operating on. I said, seriously, is, is that what it's for? He says, yeah. He says, well, you've put the arrow on my right leg and my cruise ship's my left. He went, you're joking. So we got the marker pen and scribbled the arrow out on that leg and put another arrow on my left leg. So that's what the last one of the last thoughts was, was that I went in the room to I went in to go to the operating theatre. And just before I went to sleep, I looked on the side and no word of a lie, there was a black and decker drill. Wow. On the side of the on the side at the side of me. And that was all I can remember. So I woke up the first time I woke up and I looked down to make sure he got the right leg, which was left, which was a relief. And then um, the physio Alan Smith came in and he said to me, he said, Oh, it's been a successful operation. I said, Oh. Alan, because he was in on the operation, he, he watched it. I said to him, what was the drill for? He said, um, oh, he says, you've taken your cruise ship completely off the bone, so we can't secure it to anything, he said. So what they've done is they've drilled a hole in your, in your bone, they've threaded the cruise ship through and they've stapled it. I went, all oh, right, he says, and that's what the drill is. He says, yeah, 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 he says, don't worry, it's all sterilised and everything, he says, it's all perfectly fine. He says, yeah, they need a drill to be able to drill through your bone. So I went, all right. So after that, I was in pot for six weeks at 90 degrees and then another six weeks at 45 degrees. And then eventually I had this hinge in the middle of the two pots where I was allowed to not fully extend my leg and not fully bend it back. And I worked from there. I mean, now we don't do them straight away operations now. They, they, they leave them a month and, um, you know, they, they just um, have an operation. As soon as you come out, you you know, you're working on it. It wasn't like that back then. So Alan told me as well, he came to see me at the house and he said to me, he said, this career's finished players. He says, but he had his calendar under his arm and he said to me, he said, look, there you go. He says, see those two weeks there? And I says, yeah, he says, they're my two weeks holiday. They're your two weeks. Every other day you're in. 
So I says, okay, brilliant. So started coming back in. And sometimes he says, if you don't feel brilliant, have a day, you know, day off or half a day off or whatever. He said, not a problem with that. I said, okay. So I did it once. And the next day he made up the half a day I had the following day. So I thought, I'm not doing that again. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So in the squad environment, goalkeepers are always classed as the ones that are a bit left field, a bit, bit out there, a bit mental. Have you come across any other goalkeepers that you've played with or against of stories that you know that they are just completely mental bonkers? Yeah, it's true. You have to be. <laughs> you know, you've got your home life and you've got your work life. And, and my work life was, yeah, I agree. You had to be deaf to be a goalkeeper. Goalkeepers are all the same. I've worked with Stephen Bywater, uh, David Ford, uh, Jordan Archer in uh, my times. And yeah, it's a goalkeeper's union. It's a unique position. The only real people that understand it is, is the goalkeeping coach. You weren't bad at penalties either, Kev. I'll let you know. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Yeah, the penalties. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, Fuck you know, every time, smash top corner. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ, it's wonderful effort. I know, but that's all I ever did in my career, though. <laughs> <laughs> you missed out in the 91 League Cup final against Man United. How was that still with? Because you played quite a few games, I believe, from looking at the stat, uh, a few games you played in the competition. I think you expected to almost start it, and then it got changed. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's eleven thirty, morning of the game, Oakley Court near in Windsor. Uh, Ron Atkinson's manager pulls me. Oh, you know, manager wants to see her, right? So I go and see the manager. Yes, yeah. Uh, I'm going to leave you out today to teach you a lesson. Your attitude stinks. He said, you don't deserve to play. He says, when you get back in my team, make sure you stay there and you've got a better attitude. Well, that was it. I was devastated. No sub-goalkeepers either. So I ended up sitting there through the game. We won one nil, And then we went back to the um, Royal Lancaster, I think, next to Hyde Park. Yeah. Afterwards, we'd won. Um, and all I remember is about 4am with a big craft of beer sat in Hyde Park on a bench looking over the serpentine, thinking, what have I done? What have I done wrong? And to be fair, it was probably the best thing he ever did to me. And it, it changed my ways, changed how I was. And um, I got back in at the end of the season and I was involved in the promotion when we went up against Oldham. I think we lost 3-2 on the plastic. What was the difference with Ron Atkinson and, say, Trevor Francis as managers? Did you get on with both of them or was there someone that looked less personable? Um... Ron was a great man manager. He he, uh, he loved his father's size. He used to join in. Um, we had a great nucleus of players. We dealt with each other ourselves on and off the pitch. Um, the amount of times I had arguments with with Mark Brights and, and the Danny Wilsons of this world and everything, you know, you'd be playing away, I don't know, Wimbledon away in, at Sellers Park and, you know, coming to defend a corner and Mark Brights having a go at me because he didn't come for the cross. And I'm going, how did you get... Think, how do you know I should have come for that? And then I'm saying to him, whilst I sit in the corner, what about the one you missed from three yards? That wasn't three yards. And we're having a big, massive argument between us. Right. And the lads marking us, whoever it was, between us, he's going, what the hell's going on here? And, you know, we were having this, oh, we're half time, we'll sort it out. And yeah, I'm sick of you. I'm sick of you and all this. And it was like it all the time, you know. We, and then straight after the games, and everything, we're all mates because we all wanted to win and, and we wanted to push each other to win. Um, Trevor, I, start, I feel he's just started to lose that. I think he struggled dealing with the bigger players. 
And I think they started to leave around the time when he took over, never really replaced them as characters. And um, I think that was really the, the biggest difference for me was that Trevor, um, I mean, one of the funny one was we played in the league. I can't remember, it was a game and we didn't play very well. It was poor performance. And he basically said, he picked a load of players out of the team that played and he said on the, on the Monday, you're going to play in the reserves. So we played in the reserves on, on the Monday. And he's, um, he's come in the dressing room. There's two doors from the tunnel. And then there's another door at the back to take you into um, where the, uh, the showers are and everything. And he comes through the door. And he comes through the door and he's shouting at us, this is not good enough. This is the reason why you're in the reserves. He said, this is not right, blah, blah, blah. Never broke stride. He just went, came in one door, went out the other. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, um, like I say, he was, um, no, there was a big difference, as I say, Ron. Ron was definitely a, a man manager and, and, you know, when he came in the room and whatnot, you think, wow, you know, he, he was there to do business. Well, I was going to ask you, in about like 96, 97, um, you started like, Chef went started like getting imports. Yeah. Um, I was just going to, uh, Dan Petrescu was one, uh, Reggie Blinker, Carboni, De Canio. Did they kind of change the dressing room for you? It broke the dressing room. It broke the dressing and it never had happened at Sheffield Wednesday probably previous to that. I've got one or two foreign players in previous, but when they started to come in, because obviously we're successful and, and, and obviously the, the, the market for Sheffield Wednesday back then was a lot bigger than, than just, you know, UK-based players, you just, they live a different way, a different lifestyle. So, you know, when we used to have a, a committee where you, one person every month would arrange a get-together what it'd be, go out for lunch in the afternoon or, or you know, go go-karting or something like that, or go and play golf. You don't, one of the players would arrange it for one month and we'd all turn up. But then as the foreign players started coming, they didn't come. So mm. you started to lose numbers and it just got a little bit, uh, you know, it got a little, a little harder and a little harder to understand because the spirit within the club was was very strong. You know, somebody said we're going to be at such and such at three o'clock. Everybody turned up. But when they started coming, it didn't work like that anymore. Who would you say was your best partnerships in front of you? The set of halves. I mean, Peter Shercliffe and, and Mark Smith in the early days, Nigel Pearson. And then you got, obviously, the Nigel Worthingtons and Phil Kings of this world. And then we were treated to probably one of the best pros I came across in my career on an everyday basis, Rowan Nelson. You know, he, he brought another level into, in, into the game or into the football club. You know, his preparation before games, the way he acts and the way he behaved and the way he was, it was unbelievable. And and he was the really, probably that was the start of the change in the sense that, you know, fish and chips after a game and, and, and a case, case of beers under the bus on the bus after a game, it was starting to be frowned upon. Did you think, so obviously you said about uh, uh, Carboni and Decanio, how were they as characters? I mean, because obviously everyone knows Decanio is a bit of a hothead. What was that like to work with in training? It was, was great. He was great to watch. He was very demanding um, to be part of training. He wanted five sides done properly and ref properly. Um, if he felt that there was a ball had got out of the far side, and obviously the, the, the coach is coaching it from the other side, and he can't quite see, and he just says play on. No, he would lose his head and basically go in. Um, that's how much he wanted to be professional. Again, he's another ad to the way things have started to change in the sense of the culture of being had professional off the pitch uh, as well as on the pitch, uh, match days to training. 
you know, there was no real difference uh, in, in either the, either of the, the Italian lads. They they were good professionals, and it you took something from that. You started to realise that you know the pedigree and the reason why they were as good as what they are because of their dedication in training and what they did. Who were the best characters that you played alongside in that over that period? Uh, who? I, I, I mean, you know, I, I'll go back to the Ron, Ron era, you know, the Carlton Palmers of this world, um, David Erse, you know, Nigel Pearson, Nigel Worthington, Danny Wilson, you know, I think we even had Viv Anderson there, Rowland, Phil King, John Oakes. Um, they were all characters. And, and because he got a good dressing room and a strong dressing room, Ron didn't have to do a lot. If somebody stepped out of line, you found out about it from the rest of the lads. You didn't need the manager to come up all you and say, what have you been doing? You knew you'd been done. You knew you were in the wrong because of um, what he said and, and, you know, what the players had said or what he said to each other. What about locker room jink- hijinks? Was that in terms of, like, pranks and things like that? Was you... One of the people was involved in that with all the players you had. Yeah, we all were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all were. put sugar in socks and cut toes off the socks. So when they come and put them on, they got the egg. Um, yeah, we used to hang the um, all the cutlery to the ceiling, sellotape it to the ceiling. In, in the used to come in on a Sunday, and the the kit man used to have his little room and he used to have a little toaster in there and everything, and then come in for treatment on a Sunday. You're waiting around board, so I've got a sellotape and stuck all his cutlery to the to the ceiling in the in the kit room. Um, yeah, Nigel Pearson again. He was another one. He was a great character, very dry as a humour, but he was he was probably the head of entertainment. I'd say. Who was your roommate, Kev, throughout your mainly your career? Um, Graham Hyde um, was was one of them. Uh, I see him, uh, watching the penalties, I see him take a good penalty as well today. Uh, yeah, he um, he hated me because I had the window of me minus four. <laughs> so um, he used to have to bring his thermals with me. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, it's probably mainly him. I think through the when the goalkeepers weren't allowed to room together in case one had an illness, the other one catch it. Yeah, so we had to keep separate. Um, but yeah, there was, I don't know, Nigel Worthington sometimes and whatnot. You know, it depends what the squad was. Andy Inchcliffe when he was there as well. What was the worst prank that got played in the dressing room that caused a real ruckus? Was there anything that you <laughs> like real, like, hold on a second, it's, just, it's gone over to, overboard now? Um, yeah, there was uh, one where I came in on the, the ground, we were training. We used to sometimes train at the, get to change the ground and the training ground was actually a walk up the road. So we used to... Um, uh, come in one morning, sat there, you know, those bottled water drinks machines with a great big bottle on the top. So I'm sat opposite on the dressing room. So I've got changed and I'm sat there and I'm looking at it. I'm going, what the hell's that? I could see this orange fleck or something like that. What's that? I've gone over a bit close to somebody put a goldfish in it. <laughs> and it's turning around. What about initiations? Were there any initiations that players had to do coming in? Especially they, with foreign, they, uh, got, they got stopped many, many uh, years ago. Um, obviously, Back in the day, uh, the initiation was um, uh, boot polish and Vaseline. Um, used to get, used to grab you when you were young apprentice. When you first came in there, they used to grab you tight, take your clothes off, tie you to a stretcher, put <coughs> boot polish and all, all over you, and they used to run Vaseline into your hair, and then they used to take you to the top of the cot before it had the roof, and then it'd leave you there with the cars coming down Harry's Road. So um, we did that. Uh, another one was ice uh, baths. 
um, got chucked in a wicker skip, which used to take the kit in, used to close it shut and then drop you in an ice bath, a big bath full of ice with a little gap to breathe. Um, had that, that was one of them. And then the other ones was with, you weren't allowed in the first team dressing room as a kid and you weren't allowed anything, but you had to come in and sing happy birthday to yourself. On the, table, on the pool table in the uh, canteen at the training ground with a with a brush. Who was your favourite manager to play? Ron, Ron the first time uh, for who he was and and how he how he prepared us and how he did everything. Uh, if you wanted a, a black and white, no grey areas covered. How working so discipline demands needs. He was he was fantastic with that. For organisation, we used to do it on a Friday set place. I mean, he drew. On the wall, he got the, the groundsman to, to a white line from the wall at the training ground out, which was the width or the length from the front post to the corner flag. And he used to get the lads who were taking the corners and put a happy face on there and a sad face. Hit the happy face. And he, he was there. He says, I don't care. You've got to hit the happy face and be consistent with it. And we used to spend hours on the training ground doing set plays until we got them right. You know, it wasn't like now where you go through a set place, right? This is what we want. This is where you go and stand. This is where you go. Um, you're right. Go on then. Delivery from the delivery goes in the behind the goal. Right. We'll move on. No, he would be there and he would be there till whatever time sorting it out. You can't be accept that as a as a player, can you? How do you know you're not going to do that on the Saturday? And now, to be honest, the amount of times dead ball situations that you see players cannot deliver a ball in the box is one of the simple least precious thing pressured things I think ever being able to clip a ball onto somebody's head without hitting the person in the front surely it should be easy but it seems to be such a hard thing nowadays they, they can't miss the first man at the moment no 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 but Kevin, how, Kevin, how do you feel about goalkeeping the way it is today because a lot of it's played with its feet now as well how would you feel you would have coped with that as it's played um, now people have asked this before I think I'm glad I'm not a goalkeeper today um starting my career I, I was brought up as a goalkeeper as it says goalkeeper mm. you know there's the goal and I'm a keeper and what's the job of the keeper keep the ball out the back of the net if you were lucky enough to have ability with the ball at your feet bonus I was fortunate enough to be able to deliver long balls and, and, and quality with what I had with my left foot um, and that was that was the bonus but the first thing I was judged on was do I keep goal do I keep the ball out the back of the net you know, do I support me back four with communication? You know, do I come for crosses? Nowadays, it's an accepted thing that the keeper, even though the keepers have got taller, I mean, that's the other thing. I'm only six, six two, so I mean, I wouldn't have made it in the Premier League. Um, you know, you've got to be six four, six five, six seven. But do they come for crosses? No. Does it make them better for dealing with high balls? No. Um, it's changed a lot. There's been a lot of influence, obviously, from foreign goalkeepers and foreign goalkeeping coaches. Uh, and it's now an accepted thing to concede goals where I feel that they should be saved, especially on the angles. I just chuck the legs out instead of actually going with a hand and making the stop. So no, it's uh, it's it's not as good. I mean, I train and everything, and I, I still do today with when I work with the keepers. Find your own personal limit. I'm not going to tell you what it is. If I've got you four together in a group, I'd say right. Everybody's an individual. You're all your own personal. Find out what works for you consistently that will allow you to put good performances in. Find your limits and practice your limits and make mistakes on the training ground so that when you come on a Saturday, you can make a good decision that nine times out of ten will be successful. And that's even trying to catch the ball. Now a lot of players don't. They parry it. I know the ball moves, um, but 
you know, surely you can still be able to see if you can make a save and catch the ball. Not every shot is moving, you know, but it's just a banging the balls away now as they do. And it, it's but does yeah, the ball do you think the balls now move a lot more than what they did in the night? Yeah, they're designed to. They're designed to. I was fortunate enough to be in my later years of my career at Leicester, and they, they came down with a World Cup ball. Mm. It was a you know a trial ball. You know they put it together and they wanted to experience it, and they worked with the goalkeepers when I was down there, and uh, they moved all over the place. And we said that. I said the first thing: hey, the ball flies a lot quicker, and it's and it moves in the aces. Yeah, that's how it's been designed. And then. You know, they're not aerodynamic anymore. That's why all these panels and you see all these zigzag panels, it's actually to, to disrupt the air so the ball does move. So it makes average players look good players because they can smash it for 20 yards and it goes in a top corner. It makes the technique, good, technique that they're using is, is not good enough. See? Yeah. Um, no, I was just going to, uh, going back to uh, your uh, pers- your career, um, you got free, you had three England B call-ups, Kevin. Um, how was playing for England B, like, was it, did everyone take it, like, was it serious, like, or yeah. is it a bit like, well, look, we ain't good enough to get anything, so we'll just have a fuck about and a piss up while we're no, in? No, 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 it was uh, it was as, as serious as what it was when I was lucky enough when, when Glenn Hoddle and, and Terry Venables were manager to be involved in the full squad. You were part of that squad, you know. Mm. It could be the 22 or the 30, you know, when you get selected and then within that 30, then obviously back then, you know, it's England B, it's called England B, it's basically in reserves. And, and you represent your country and it means as much as, as anything. The level compared to playing premiership football day in, day out was, was another 10%. It was unbelievable. You know, when I first went there, wow, didn't realise how quick, how fast, how everything was. It was it was eye-opening. And you used to come back off your trips and you'd be exhausted because the standard of player was, was breathtaking, but you only had a, it is now a 10-day window. And that's all you've got with the most elite players that you've got available for, for England. And the standards is, is breathtaking. And, you, you know, you want to be part of it, but you've got to be, you know, it's, it's something that you can't, oh, all right, give me two weeks, I'll, I'll be right for that. Then you've got to up your game. And, and it's with mentally, when you come back off international trips, you know, you're absolutely goosed mentally and physically because the spotlight's on you. When you was in the England squad, sorry. When he was in the England squads, which player surprised you seeing him up close from other teams? It's all what, from other teams other than England? Other team in England, in the Premier League, oh, other players, but when you actually saw them and trained with them. The, the, um, the Manchester United lads, Phil and, and, and you know, David Beckham and, and Garrett. Um, mine's gone blank. Uh, Gary Neville, um, the way they trained, the way they were, was the biggest thing. You know, oh, match days, match days, match days. Then when you go to the bigger clubs and you have an opportunity to work with them, they're match days every day. They trained as if they play, and that was probably the biggest thing. Um, all of them, when I first went, it was it was breath. You know, it was not like oh, I don't really fancy today at training, so I just go through the motions. No, no. The top players do it day in, day out, week in, week out. They, they practice for perfection and they, they make sure they achieve it and they walk off the training ground. And, you know, it's like a, a match day in the sense of the demands and the needs. And, and it, that was probably the biggest thing for me uh, that I had to come to terms with, was with the demands of being at that level. During that period in the 90s when you was in England, B, do you think you could have had a call-up? I mean, because 
Ian Walker, Tim Flowers, they both aren't caps. But you were considered as good as either goalkeeper. Was there anything that you, did you speak to anyone from the FA about or anyone to try and see what you needed to do to try and step up and get the England cap? Didn't, didn't at the time, no. Um, I was available. Um, I think I got to number three, third choice, and a couple of them. I think one of them was um, uh, Spain at Wembley. I think Stuart Pearce was there and everything. Obviously, worked with um, David Seaman and, and whatnot. Ray Clements was the goalkeeping coach as well. Um, he, he, it's the same with football, club football. You know, I'm led to believe that you go there. The first part of it is I managed to get selected and and, and, and to be part of it. Great, tick. Next thing to be involved in it on a, a more regular basis, which I was fortunate enough to. Great. And then the other thing was down to selection. What do I do? Club form allow me to get to within the inside the door. Ultimately, the manager and the coaches are the ones that pick the team to represent the country. And unfortunately, that didn't happen for me. But, you know, I don't know what I could have done different to have changed that. What would you say was your key strength as a goalkeeper? What your best attribute? It weren't a penalty taking. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was our best traits? He was good at saving penalties, Jeff. Sorry? He was good at saving penalties as well. Yeah, yeah, I had a good record saving penalties. Um, I don't know, I, I tried to be a complete, my hero, my idol was in the early days of my, my, my youth was Ray Clements and he was the first one that really swept up at the back, came out of the mm. box and dealt with balls over the top with his feet. Uh, that's something I did take on board um, and, and used it. I tried to be the most complete person I could possibly be and be, you know, good at everything, good at everything and be reliable. The most thing for me was as a goalkeeper is you've got to be reliable and be able to people to rely on you to, to be consistent. And then that was one thing that drove me. Um, like I say, shot stopping, crossing, yeah. I, I used to come for crosses. Obviously, I could deal with a back pass when the game changed and, and whatnot. I didn't have a problem with that. Um, yeah, and I could take criticism. I could take disappointment. And, and, and that's probably the biggest regret I think I've got now looking back. I neither get overexcited when things go positively and, and things are good, whereas I don't get, you know, don't get disappointed either. And when I've had as a coach and we've won games and we've, I've got promotions with, with Scunthorpe and, and obviously Millwall and bits and pieces like that. I found it hard to celebrate because I was always thinking of the next thing. And, and I suppose that's probably the only thing I'm disappointed with. I don't show more, more emotion. But then I'm a goalkeeper. <laughs> I don't show emotion because that's a sign of weakness. The same as if I got injured, and my dad used to say, the last thing you want to do is show the opposition that you're injured. He said, and, and that was it. The physio used to come on to me. He says, what have you done? I said, I've done this. He said, leave me. He says, leave me. me. I'm just going to come round. And I used to get up and carry on. I broke my finger in a game. What have you done? I broke my finger. He says, you sure? I says, yeah, the way it feels. I've dislocated it. I said, I've put it back in. I said, but he says, well, what do you want to do with it? I says, nothing, nothing. Just just give me two minutes. You're here. Just give me two minutes to come round to it. And that's how I was. And, you know, it, that's, that's, again, the mental side of it. Played with yeah. a ankle in, ligament injury, doing set plays the day before against, we're playing Leeds away, and I went over on my ankle, which blew up like a balloon. I played the game, and it strapped and had everything possible I could have done um, so that the other guy didn't get a game. 
Did you, um, going back to penalties, did you study the opposition's penalty takers before games or did you think, right, if I no, get a penalty, I'm going top, I'm going bottom left, top right? What was your, what was your strategy? Didn't, didn't have the analysis what there is now. Um, we weren't as fortunate enough. Uh, I had my own idea with regards to penalties and how I prepared myself for them. Um, and I used that, which was I felt was quite, uh, you know, reasonably successful. Um, but we didn't have videos. Oh, it was VHS thing and Betamax. <laughs> but we didn't have we didn't have that. I mean, scouting was becoming a new thing, not individually, but scout used to go to the games and just give you a general guide of how they played and whatnot and what they did. It wasn't as in depth as what it is now, where you know it's it's scary. You, you know, you can get lost in it. Well, exactly what how you say it, basically. Because if I was, I've taken penalties in the past, but like you say, if someone knows that you go usually to your left side, they know that the keeper knows that, right? So mm. it's it's like it's like you say, it's all mentally, and just I just think go with your instincts. Personally, I would. Yeah, the reason why I took penalties, I took a penalty to see how it felt like, and this is being weird. I know <laughs> we are. I took a penalty to feel. I originally started to take penalties to see how it would feel the other side. Everybody goes on about, oh, the pressure's on and all this. I wanted to feel that pressure. I wanted to understand when you're standing facing a goal with people behind you, having the, putting the ball down, go through your own personal preparation. I wanted to go through all that to experience it, to see what it felt like. I had the advantage of I knew where goalkeepers' weaknesses are. Mm. How did it feel? And that, and that game, for me, that gave me a little bit of an advantage. And I knew that pace is the biggest thing. If you strike a ball with pace from 12 yards, how quick do you have to react? You know, and you have to go middle of the goal and higher because from a standing start for a keeper to get into the corners is, is, is nigh on impossible. Um, so it was pace with height. And did you I, find, I practiced it. Did you find it was you experienced the pressure and felt it? Did you appreciate more what a striker goes through and did you prefer taking them or saving them? I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Got a buzz out of it. Uh, I enjoyed the pressure. Uh, I enjoyed the... But then don't forget, as a goalkeeper, you're dealing with that every part of the game because a mistake will cost you a goal. I missed the target. If I'm taking a penalty, that's obviously a missed penalty. I enjoyed the pressure. I enjoyed it. I, I just wanted to experience taking it. Did I... I enjoyed saving them. I enjoyed. I enjoyed that. I must admit, taking the penalty was was yeah. It was it was another enjoyable thing. I would say saving probably would take for me first place. But the penalty side and taking it and understanding the pressures and and what you need to do and you know you shut yourself down. I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going to put this ball. I'm going to place it here. I've got to walk to the edge of my D. I'm going to step two sides in there, relax, take a deep breath, and then the next thing is. I keep my eye on the ball, strikes with the ball. As I was taking a goal kick, that's how I took it as a goal kick and delivered it and dispatched it where it went to the game. And that's where I wanted it to come. Brilliant. Um, in terms of strikers at the club, there's one striker that's come up on the our podcast a few times, um, which is David Hurst. Uh, Alex Ferguson tried to sign him on a number of occasions, uh, but injuries, I think, hampered his career. 
we, I felt, or not everyone, but me and the, one another person who's not here, we felt he was he could have been one of the best strikers in the Premier League. Um, what, first-hand, how good was he? Very good, natural goal scorer. Um, as a goalkeeper, when you're taking in shooting sessions, you uh, are involved in shooting sessions, you get to see the natural goal scorers. You know, you'll see some that you'll think you could be here for the next three weeks and you'll never score. Whereas you've got one or two that could just do it, could could put the ball in the back and out on a regular basis from different distances. And he was one of them. He could have gone to the top. He could have been huge. He could have made it, you know, he, he had a good career. But like you say, he was hampered by injuries. And I think ultimately that affected him. But he was, yeah, he was probably a very good centre forward and one of the best. And he could have had a really good England career on top of it. Who's the best uh, forward at the club that you you played when you was there in training? Who did you say was just out of this world? Or um, I'd say obviously Hurst was one of them. Um, then you got the Paolo and and Carboni. Um, they were you know great. You know they didn't. They, there wasn't a lot of tells with regards to how they struck the ball, so they were a lot harder to read. Um, and then you got the likes of a player called Gerald Sibon who could. It's a ball at 100 miles an hour, I think it was. He could smash a ball. Um, so they all had their unique ways of doing things. And, and everybody says, who's the best player you've played against? I, I feared every single player on the pitch, apart from their goalkeeper, who potentially could score goals. You know, do you do extra things? No, I cover every base with every player that plays on the pitch. If he out wide on the left with the right foot, all right, he's going to come inside. You know, what are we going to do? We're going to show him the outside, or if he does come inside, you know, where's my position? You better expect he's going to shoot. Yeah, I'm, I'm working with a guy called Tim Mousy who played for Portadown a couple of years after you'd left. Yeah, and he asked me to he asked me to mention Ronnie McF- Is it Ronnie McFall? Yeah, the Ronnie McFall. Longest yeah. serving manager uh, before um, in, in, football, in European football, yeah. head of Alex yeah. Ferguson when Alex Ferguson yeah. retired. 29 years he was there. What was he yeah. like? It was great. It was great. I enjoyed it. Best best time of my probably the best ending of my career. I'd, I'd finished at um, where had I been? Where was I been? I think. Um, Gonna pause down and finish. I was a school. Um, no, I wasn't. I was just before school, wasn't it? So yeah, I, I was going to retire, or I was, I was debating whether to go into coaching. And I got a phone call out of the blue from Ronnie. Do you want to come over and play for us at Quarterdown? You know, he says, this is what the plan is. You know, you train all week over in England, fly out, play on the Saturday, on the Friday, fly out, and then somebody will take you to the game. And then on the Saturday after the game, you basically fly back. And I thought, that sounds actually quite interesting. That. So I said, go on then. He said, it's only till January. So the keeper that we had in had been suspended or something for pushing a ball boy over for about 12 games or something. So I went over there and... Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. People were fantastic. Um, the football was honest. The players stayed down if they were genuinely interest, injured. They weren't on the floor rolling if because they're trying to, you know, somebody had just caught them. Um, and, you know, I'd come for a cross and I'd get absolutely hammered. You know, the players would come in and, and try and clean you out. Loved it. Loved it. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Went in there, they were at the bottom. Told me that they're playing for Champions League qualification places and UEFA qualification, which I couldn't get my head around. Well, that's my next question. The, the, the situation of Wednesday now is quite brutal. Um, have you been back there at any capacity or been offered any road, uh, coaching roles or any capacity, anything there with the club, the link with it? No, I left in 2004. Um, Chris, Wa- Chris, Wa- Chris Turner was manager. 
who um, and his assistant was Colin West. At the end of the season, we played a testimonial on the Tuesday and on the Thursday or the Wednesday it was, all the players are in because there was about 13 of us with our contracts up. I was the first one in, so I went into his office. He went, oh, we're not going to offer anything. I went, oh, thank God for that. Because what do you mean? I said, you don't realise I've been absolutely having a sleepless night thinking that you can offer me £25 a week. He goes, what are you going on about? this? because if you'd offered me £25 a week, I'd have stayed. I said, you have given me the best present ever. He goes, what are you going on about? I says, you have taken that choice that I would have had to make away from me because you've told me I'm not getting a contract. I says, thank you so much. I'm so happy. I can walk out here now and anybody comes and says anything to me, why are you leaving Wednesday? Go and see Chris Turner. He released me. He's like, oh. So he says, I said, look, Chris, I says, obviously, I knew him from years, years gone by and everything. So they're not being funny. I said, um, don't worry about me. I'll go to another club, not a problem. But I'm concerned about the way you're running the club. I says, you've got to be careful. And anyway, I went out and then went downstairs. What's he said? What's he said? You know, the lads went down there. No, that's me done. <clears throat> when he previously offered the week before or spoken to some of the players and said that they're actually getting contracts. So they all went upstairs. He cleared the deck of the lot. They all went. So you got young players coming down, uh, Owen Morrison's and that, the Quinnies of this world and things. Matt Hamshaw's, you know, and Stevie Aslam, uh, they were all devastated because they were told that they were going to get deals. And anyway, he cleared the decks with us. Um, I think the chairman was behind it at the time. And then um, they ended up having a list of 13, 14 players they wanted. And the Obviously, the agents knew that they were the chosen ones. So it actually cost them the wage, but it cost them more money than the players that they got there anyway. And it didn't go very well either. So, um, yeah, I left, I left there with my head held high. I went to Leicester after that. Cantona at Sheffield Wednesday. Was mm. you part of that process at all? Did you see him? Yes. Play? Oh, How yes. Played. He came in. We were, um, again, Trevor was manager. Um the pictures were frozen at the training ground in uh, Hillsborough. There was a, um, it's not 3G, it was AstroTurf back then, at, uh, just off near Rotherham. It was, it was near Rotherham, the pitch was. So we used to all drive there in our cars with the kit rolled up and we used to get changed there and go and train on the AstroTurf, which was no better than actually training on the rock hard pitches, to be honest. Eric Cantona came in, just finished his band in France, um, came and trained with us, wow. Yes, we've got a sign in. Well, during that week that he came in, we played a, an exhibition game at the City uh, Arena, the arena in Sheffield, against Baltimore Blast, which was, a, you know, like uh, the soccer fires in sixes that they used to have. So it was indoors, and an ice rink type size pitch. And we play their, their game. It's a national game. They come over to showcase it. We were part of it, and we were involved. We put players on, take players off, and everything like that. Eric Cantona played in it, fantastic, scored goals, unbelievable, let's sign him, we've got to sign him. Trevor, you've got to sign him, the lads were saying, you've got to sign him, what a player. So we go come back in the back end of the week, to the Friday, and Trevor goes, um, I was wondering if it's possible if you could come in next week to see what you like on grass. So he went, no. And then obviously the rest is history, he ends up at Leeds and feels terrible. Oh my God! So he was that good then, even in, even in. Oh wow! Yes, yes, 
Yes, you, you can see, you, you don't have to, you see good players. I mean, the, the thing makes me laugh now because obviously I've been coaching the lower leagues and the biggest thing for me, when you play in the premiership, you play higher. The pace they pass the ball to each, your own player, your own thing, they fire it in, they have a touch and move it on. You do that down in the lower leagues and, and the time when I was at Scunthorpe, you pass the ball with the same pace. They look at you going, what are you trying to do? Break my leg. <laughs> and you know, you're trying to say, no, that's what the tempo and that's the type of pass. And he's a goalkeeper for me. I get a back pass rattled at me. They expect to deal with it. If you don't deal with that, well, you get hung, drawn, and quartered. But nowadays, you know, you, you play a ball at somebody and fire in with pace, and they actually go, well, hang on a minute, what are you trying to do? You know, like you're taking a mickey or what? And, and that's, that's the thing. That's, that's the thing that you notice when the top players came into the club at Wednesday that you ended up seeing. You know, the qualities of A, to be able to deal with the passes and B, to be able to administer the passes with a pen, with a tempo. And okay. it makes you a better play. And it makes you realise that nobody can really close you down by the time they start moving towards it. You've had your touch, it's been moved on. Because, David Holland, you, you seem to think Cantona's overrated. So, I think Kevin Pressman... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, look, but, look, but look where I am and... Uh... <laughs> I never said he was over 80. I said Giggs was. I said Backtracking. I did my A licence with Ryan Giggs and, and Gary Neville. And Gary Neville had just been out of the Man United team with uh, an ankle injury. And he'd just come back at the last part of the season. And we got to the, obviously, it's a residential seven days there, back back, back when A licences were different to what they are now. And um, we're all in the building and we're all doing that. We're all working together in a group. Uh, one takes the session and the others obviously, you know, help out by taking a position. So obviously I must be the only, uh, on that course, I was the only goalkeeper there. So I was always in goal, didn't mind. And anyway, they got seminars in the evenings and everything like this. And the guy comes on and goes, for every two weeks of you not training, you lose six weeks of conditioning. So Gary never goes, can you explain that to me? So he says, yeah, he says, if, you, if, if you're inactive for two weeks or don't train properly for two weeks, it affects you six weeks in your conditioning, not your fitness, the actual conditioning of your body. So then you become more liable to pick up injuries down the line later on because your conditioning is not quite right. Well, after that, the next day, I've never seen him. Gary Neville was training as if he was at Man United. He was running around, closing down, doing everything. And he, he just changed like that. It was where he was like, oh, I don't want to do it today. Can you leave me out? So suddenly he was like training as if he was preparing or he was at Man United. It was it was unbelievable. Brilliant. Um, well, I think that wraps that part up. Thank you so much. I'm just going to go over a quick, all the guests we have on, we have a quick fire round. Just a few fun questions. Um, just answer them as, as best you can. Uh, so question number one, fish and chips or pie and chips? Fish and chips. Biggest arsehole you've worked with? <laughs> 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 I'll shock you here and I'll tell you after the reason why Benny and Paolo oh okay nice. I understood that <laughs> quick fire quick oh, fire sorry. Right, sorry yes Giggs Ryan Giggs or Overmars David Seaman he had the longest throw didn't he in the, in the world he could throw it over Mars <laughs> um, gigs. Um, best film you watched? Who wins in a fight? 
I've got, <laughs> right. You ready? <laughs> Who wins in the fight here? Nigel Pearson or Nigel Worthington? Oh, oh, Nigel Pearson. Uh, David De Gea or Dean Henderson? De Gea. Thank you so much, Kevin. That's the end of the quick fire round. Thank you so much for giving all your time. Really appreciate that. Um, Do you want to hear about Penny? Yeah. Yes, yes. We're all waiting. <laughs> so obviously, we all know about the old cock situation where he pushed him over. Yeah. yeah. Paolo did. I was playing in that game. Afterwards, he went AWOL. Went back to Italy. Left us, you know, left us. Couldn't get hold of him. Couldn't find him. Couldn't do anything, and then Sky track him down to in Italy, where he has some clothing shops. So they find him eventually, and they interview him. So eventually, he comes back into Wednesday, but he brings his personal training. Doesn't want anything to do with the players. Doesn't want anything to do with the um, with anything with regards to Sheffield Wednesday. So he trains on his own, does all his things, you know, and, and you know he's a good player. He's left us in the lurch, and and we're bitterly disappointed, you know. And why are we getting punished? because he feels that the club haven't supported him with regards to the, the, the ban that he received. So eventually, because of the, he wasn't going to ever play for Wednesday again, they managed to get some money from him to go to West Ham. So that was the reason for him. Mr Carboni. Mm. So, great player again. Went to Southampton away. Sat in the dressing room at the old old den. Uh, old, yeah, is it the den? Yeah, it is. Yeah, old, yeah. yeah. So I'm sat in the dressing room next to him. So Danny Wilson comes in and names the team. I'm not playing. Uh, anyway, he goes to the team. Benny's not playing. He played last week. And he, and he, to be fair, he did all right. But we lost. So next thing I know, he's, he's going, um, why me? Why me? Manager gone out. So I'm getting started. I'm getting the gear on to go out. Could be, I'm sub. Anyway, he's already in his kit, sat in his kit. He starts taking his kit off. So what are you doing? He says, um, why me? Why is it always me? I always get blamed for when we lose. He said, I'm not staying here. I'm going. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going. He got his suit carrier because he was going to go back to his left the game anyway. So he's unzipping his suit carrier. He's getting his jeans out. He's putting his jeans up. I go, what are you doing? He says, you can't be going now. We need you. You're part of this. this. No, no, I've had enough. I'm going. I'm going. So I see Frank Barlow is Danny's assistant. I said, Frank, you got to get the manager. He's off. He's going. Because you know what? He's actually leaving the building. He's getting his shoes out. He's putting his shoes on. He's getting his shirt out and he put his shirt. Daddy, what the hell's going on? Hey, big bust up and everything like that. That Carboni storms out. He stands in the car park trying to hail a taxi. And you've got 6,000 Wednesday supporters. What the hell's he doing out here trying to hail a taxi? <laughs> Again, goes AWOL. Lads are let down, disappointed. So um, a group of us, not naming names who it was, we buy a, a child's dressing gown white. So we get the dresser and get the kit man to put R.I.P. on the back and we put a horse's head in the top of it and we hang it in his place. <laughs> so it stays there and everything like that at the training ground. He walks in, the first day he comes back, he sees it and he nearly bursts into tears. I can't play with you, I can't do any more. That's me, <laughs> Next thing he's out the door as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. On that note, Kevin, thank you so much for giving us your time. I really appreciate it. Podcast Network.